Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, D.C.-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Hi, everyone. This is Nita Beecher from Fortney Scott. Welcome to another edition of DC Insider. Today, I'm changing hats with David Fortney. So I'm moderating with David Fortney and Bert Fishman as my guests. And so it's really fun, David, to have you as a presenter instead of the moderator. Well, it's fun to be on this side, too, and to be part of the panel discussion. I'm looking forward to it. And, Bert, we're into your sweet spot with NLRB and all that union stuff. Someone doesn't have to change a hat, and I'm glad it's me. And I look forward to speaking with all of us today. Well, I'm very excited because the most important holiday in the city of St. Louis has been saved. April 4, we will have opening day, gentlemen. Aren't I'm very excited about that. <laughs> Well, and for all the labor and employment uh, geeks out there, which will be everyone on this podcast, that represents the conclusion of one of the longest labor disputes in recent memory. What, 99 days? Correct. And it was a, a lockout. So, uh, yeah, let's play ball, as we say. Exactly. Well, with that, we've got a lot to talk about today, so we're going to jump right in. The Senate finally passed a budget for FY 2022, only a few months late, so we didn't need another continuing resolution. And we've got a whole bunch of other stuff going on. So today's focus is going to be a little bit different. You know, we've been talking about how pro-labor and pro-union this particular administration has been. And one of the things we haven't really talked a whole lot about is how they're going to roll that out in the administration. And that's what we're going to talk about today with Bert and David. They're using not just our traditional approaches but also some untraditional approaches. And David, why don't you kick it off for us with a little discussion of what are we seeing as far as the usual suspects? So the usual suspects, this would be thinking about how the administration is going about implementing this pro-worker agenda, focusing on, when we say the usual suspects, kind of the key agencies that are there. And I think when we think about what is the blueprint, The administration has really been very transparent, although it hasn't received much public attention, but it's out there. The White House Task Force on Worker Organizing and Empowerment, so there is, again, both the union and the non-union piece, Organizing and Empowerment, issued this very broad-based report. First of all, every cabinet officer was on the task force, and it resulted in a total of, I believe, 70 recommendations impacting 36 agencies. And in that, certainly a large part of the report dealt with the federal workforce. And of course, the federal government is the single largest employer in the United States. And a lot of people will overlook that. And I would say the takeaway, if I could perhaps generalize that, the federal workforce, the goal of the administration is to make the federal workforce and the federal government the model union employer. Most of the federal sector is organized and represented by unions. And so they really want to lean into that and rely on that federal workforce to be illustrative as an example, they believe, for the private sector to follow. I've never found that to be much of a poll star, but nonetheless, that is the rationale here. 
Yeah, you know, David, it's kind of fascinating that all this emphasis on the federal workforce, but I think they're going to use it as a kind of model because it's going to show how you can organize to provide information, to improve transparency, and make sure that pro-worker services are delivered so that unions can organize better, workers can learn what organization means better. But for me, the key recommendation from the uh, task force has to go with the private sector. And it was the use or the asserted use by the government of its purchasing and spending power to support workers who are organizing and other pro-worker employers. It's a kind of soft blacklisting, what you will, something like that. And oddly enough, David, one of the recommendations in the uh, task force was that they use project labor agreements. And bam, a day later, the president issues an executive order imposing project labor agreements through the infrastructure bill. I hope you can fill that in for us. Yeah, so this is yet another example where the administration, and this president particularly, has really leaned into the authority he has under the procurement statutes to impose very expansive programs relating to workforce governance. For example, he previously issued the executive order to increase the federal minimum wage for government contract workers. So we have a super minimum wage of $15. Remember, Congress couldn't agree to raise the nation's minimum wage, but the president unilaterally, based on the procurement statute, said having a higher minimum wage is more efficient and effective. Similarly, he relied on that same procurement authority to impose the vaccine mandate. I might note both the vaccine mandate and that $15 minimum wage have been hung up in the courts and rejected initially by the courts. Well, there's two other things I want you guys to mention. He's also issued an executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. And how about this Treasury report, David, that issued saying that workers made 20% less? Bert? I was just blown away. I mean, look, I'm an employment lawyer. I don't think about the Treasury Department except in April when I'm filing my taxes. And all of a sudden, the Treasury Department, of all people, issued a survey that was focused on anti-competitive trends, on consolidation of the workforce, and pointing out that as a result of this consolidation, workers were being deprived of mobility and of opportunity, and it was compressing their wages. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we're getting treasury of all people using its tools as an enforcement tool in the employment context. So let's go back just a bit, Bert, and start with our friends at NLRB, because even though a lot of our listeners may be non-union employers, they're doing a lot that we need to talk about. Yes, indeed. The NLRB has announced that it is prepared to reverse some of the key Trump-era cases, specifically on employer handbooks and on joint employment and on independent contractors. And the reason this is so important is that too many people don't understand that the 96% of workers who aren't unionized are really affected and under the rule of the NLRB through the National Labor Relations Act. So when they change as they appear to be 
when they changed the rules in that famous case called Boeing, where they changed your employee handbook, when they, they change the rules for workers' conduct, it affects all employers. And so, for example, you know, in the name of protecting concerted protected activity in support of terms and conditions of employment, are we going to go back to the old Obama rules where you get disparagement of supervisors and disparagement of the company was considered okay? Where you had disclosure of testimony during an investigation was considered concerted protected activity, where you had personal gripes and Facebook postings. Remains to be seen uh, what that is, but the impact is going to be very broad. What do you think, David? Similarly, so the labor board, as Nita points out, whether you union or non-union, is going to become the handbook police. And these clauses, these policies, these practices that are very common today, you conduct an internal investigation of a harassment claim. You instruct people to keep it confidential. That policy, that practice will likely be found to be violative of uh, the requirements under Section 7 of concerted activity. So I think this is a really important change that although the unionized sector is, I think, focused on it, I don't think the non-union sector appreciates kind of this tsunami wave that's about to hit them. I couldn't agree more, David. And I think uh, the NLRB's focus has all been on this uh, union organizing and union elections. And I think people are missing not only the handbook rule, but the change for independent contractors. And maybe, David, you can tell us about that. Well, the fact of challenging contractors are going to change the rules. All the agencies are looking at this, and it will result in many workers who today are legitimately viewed as independent contractors being reclassified as employees, which means they're subject to the National Labor Relations Act and the other statutes. The General Counsel of the NLRB has made it clear that sweeping changes are coming in the enforcement of unfair labor practices, especially in organizing, especially in elections. We're going to have bargaining orders, 100% settlements, and we're going to have an increased coordinated effort to attack retaliation. And just to remind everybody, retaliation is really a bear of a charge because even if the underlying claim is dismissed, if there's been any adverse action, it's a slam dunk uh, winner. So the efforts of the NLRB and the DOL for uh, countering retaliation are going to be very important for all employers, regardless of the presence of a union. Well, David, I think the next thing we need to talk about is another of the usual suspect agencies. Wage and Hour is getting really busy right now. Yeah, Wage and Hour, uh, which is always anticipated to be quite busy, is not disappointing. It is uh, busily uh, revising the overtime regulations. It's going to raise that salary minimum, currently 36, 37,000 round numbers. It'd be, we don't know yet, but it's likely to be in the mid 40s, which means that anyone that earns below that must receive overtime, irrespective of what their duties are. Second, just uh, recently, the Labor Department has announced that for the first time in about 40 years, it's going to update the Davis-Bacon Act regulations. And those are the regulations, of course, that govern construction, laborers and mechanics. And keep in mind, for all the new infrastructure projects that are coming up that have been announced, the administration, as we mentioned before, has imposed project labor agreements and put your seatbelt on new Davis-Bacon requirements that will result in much higher wages under the Davis-Bacon Act also. So we've talked about a lot of the traditional approaches. What are some of the agencies that are getting involved in workplaces that we just aren't used to seeing? So, Bert, you want to kick us off with that? 
Yeah, I sure do. As I said, I've already mentioned the Treasury Department, which was quite a surprise for all of us. The other one that's kind of of great interest is the Federal Trade Commission. And how they got involved, I'm not sure. But the FTC is considering a ban on all non-compete agreements. And again, the theory behind it is the same as the one used by the Treasury, that this is anti-competitive and that as a result of being anti-competitive, it reduces employee mobility and has a deflationary effect on employees. But the coordination of using FTC, of using justice, of using Treasury is what I find to be most remarkable and uh, most important. And the Justice Department, speaking of that, entered uh, what I believe is the first time they've done this, a coordination, an MOU between the Labor Department and the Justice Department's antitrust division. So back to the economic analysis that the Treasury provided, now we see the backstopping it through the Justice Department antitrust division. This indicates that the Labor Department agencies will make referrals, particularly disadvantaged workers, particularly, for example, if workers are misclassified contractors, as to whether there are potential antitrust violations. And in that instance, the Justice Department has committed it will fully investigate and pursue civil or criminal proceedings. So this is no longer the DOL, you know, are we going to impose a civil money penalty? Now we're talking about potential criminal proceedings. And just a, a note on this, I think this really reflects the very interesting experience of the current solicitor of labor, Seema Nanda, because she formerly did a stint at the U.S. Department of Justice. She did a stint at the NLRB. She's very comfortable partnering with all these agencies, whereas typically people are more siloed and agency-centric. She doesn't view it that way. I think in this horizontal integration and what is euphemistically now called the workaround is what the agency described it. Since they can't get a new statutes, the PRO Act, they're going to have a workaround with these new requirements. David, let me add uh, one more agency that probably all publicly traded companies care more about than the DOL and justice and NLRB rolled together, and that's the SEC. The Security and Exchange Commission has issued a rule requiring human capital management disclosures by publicly traded companies, such items as diversity, who's part-time, who's full-time, worker turnovers. That's kind of unprecedented to see the SEC get involved in this kind of uh, workplace involvement. And, you know, behind it all, just uh, a few months ago, SEC became involved in the Activision harassment case on the grounds that the company's disclosures misled investors. So if you're a publicly traded company, the agency that you're most concerned about is turning its attention to your workplace practices. And that should be a message that is so loud you can't avoid it. Right. And it takes those ESG focus that is so popular, widely popular now, and really puts meaningful teeth because now we have the SEC backing it up. Well, one other agency I just, we, again, is kind of the, to Nita's point about the, not the usual suspects, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA. Oh my gosh, what do they have to do with the workplace? Well, apparently they've decided that's where the new blacklisting, so-called blacklisting initiative is going to come. The USDA has published a proposed rule that indicates that in order for contracts to be awarded by USDA, the prospective uh, contractor has to report on its compliance record. 
and indicate whether it's been adjudicated, whether it has violations, all that sort of thing. This is almost verbatim what the Obama administration had. It was ultimately not only struck down by the courts, but then repealed. It was struck down by the courts as violating the First Amendment and then repealed by Congress under the Congressional Review Act, which means the executive branch is not permitted to go forward with it. But nonetheless, USDA is trying to work around that, again, another workaround, and see if they can promote blacklisting. I'll call this blacklisting (laughs) 2.0. You know, we've been talking about all of these efforts, uh, and it's really, as I say, one of the most surprising elements of it is the degree and effectiveness of the coordination among the agencies to increase enforcement. But Nita mentioned budgets, and let me just throw some reality, some cold water on this. The budget passed, and it had to by uh, March 11th, but there were some remarkable elements to it. It was really legislative sausage making, and look what happened. The employment agencies thought in a proposed budget we're gonna get huge increases But the budget that came out was barely better than a continuing resolution. Listen to these numbers. The NLRB's increase, zero. The OFCCP's increase, 2.4%. That's just $2 million on a base of 108. EEOC's increase, 3.5%. 16 million on a base of over 400 million. Same for OSHA in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, these aren't even cost of living increases and it's a huge disappointment for the agencies and i think the important for us is this will have an inevitable impact on new regulatory and enforcement initiatives including some of those we've been talking about today that makes the next point really important uh just quickly david if you just want to kind of walk through enforcement coordination something we've never really seen among and between these agencies You've already talked about some of it. Do you want to just give us a quickie on some of these other ones? Sure. So this is the ultimate workaround. And so if you don't have many resources, you try to leverage and coordinate and partner up with other enforcement agencies. And that appears to be exactly what is happening. So it has been raining MOUs, memoranda of understanding, (laughs) between and among agencies. And the thrust of these are that there can be sharing of investigative files, sharing of investigative results transitioning. Gee, this didn't look like it was a problem for our agency. Maybe you should look at it. Here's our file on it. That's exactly how it's going to work. And between the labor department agencies, particularly Wage Hour, OSHA, and OFCCP, the National Labor Relations Board, and as I mentioned earlier, now the Justice Department is in the mix. So those movement of agencies, that results in coordinated investigations. It results in EEOC and OFCCP, both potentially investigating. And I would note for employers, you're not always informed when those transitions, when those files are being looked at jointly. You may think you're dealing only with the wage hour investigation. But little do you know that they may have had a question regarding your federal contracts and the OFCCP is looking at you, or they had a question because of something they saw that triggered an OSHA concern, and they've started looking at you. So this is something that I think is, if it bears out, and the only question, I think this goes back to Bert's point on the budget resources, but if they can find a way of leveraging this, it will be a very different dynamic when a government investigator from any of these agencies comes on site. You have to assume you're dealing with about four or five agencies 
when in fact you may only be interfacing with one. Well, I think that leads us down to our takeaways and I'm just gonna kick it off and then uh, turn it over to you, Bert. I think the point that you just made, David, is just crucial unprecedented coordination among the agencies that have often ignored each other and even disliked each other. That's amazing to me. Bert? I think to go back to the NLRB, NLRB actions will affect non-union employers on work rules and even on who is an employee. And those have a profound impact on the way you organize your business. David? The agencies within this new coordinated environment are clearly focusing on the lower paid workers, what are often described as the vulnerable workers. They don't have a union to represent them. They're potentially subject to overreach or mistreatment by bad employers. And so the administration really views that that is a unique spot where it's particularly important for the federal government's enforcement to be robust and meaningful. So those of you that have any of that type of workforce, and that can include in a variety of sectors, agriculture, retail, home care, et cetera, you need to be mindful that I think the federal government's gonna be laying eyes on very closely. Well, thank you both David and Bert for another great podcast. Please subscribe to the DC Insider Podcast, and we look forward to talking to you next time on another DC Insider Podcast. Thanks everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting fortneyscott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.